Dummy That Lived by L. Frank Baum In all fairyland, there's no more mischievous a person than Danko Mankey, the Yellow Ryle. He flew through the city one afternoon, quite invisible to mortal eyes, but seeing everything himself, and noticed a figure of a wax lady standing behind the big plate glass window of Mr. Floman's department store. The wax lady was beautifully dressed, and extended in her stiff left hand was a card bearing the words, Rare Bargain. This stylish costume is imported from Paris. The former price was twenty dollars, but now it's only reduced to nineteen dollars and ninety-eight cents. This impressive announcement had drawn before the window a crowd of women shoppers who stood looking at the wax lady with critical eyes. Danko Mankey laughed to himself the low, gurgling little laugh that always means mischief. Then he flew close to the wax figure and breathed twice on its forehead. From that instant, the dummy began to live. But so dazed and astonished was she at the unexpected sensation that she continued to stand stupidly staring at the women outside and holding out the placard as before. The Ryle laughed again and flew away. Anyone but Danko Menke would have remained to help the wax lady out of the troubles that were sure to overtake her. But this naughty elf thought it rare fun to turn the inexperienced lady loose in a cold heartless world, and leave her to shift for herself. Fortunately, it was almost six o'clock when the dummy first realized that she was alive, and before she had collected her new thoughts and decided what to do, a man came around and drew down all the window shades, shutting off the view from the curious shoppers. Then the clerks, cashiers, floor walkers, and cash girls all went home, and the store was closed for the night, although the sweepers and scrubbers remained to clean the floors for the following day. The window inhabited by the wax lady was boxed in like a little room, one small door being left at the side the window trimmer to creep in and out of. So the scrubbers never noticed that the dummy, when left to herself, dropped the placard to the floor and sat down a pile of silks to wonder who she was, where she was, and how she happened to be alive. For you must consider that, in spite of her size, in her rich costume, in spite of her pink cheeks and fluffy yellow hair, this lady was
was very young, no older in reality than a baby born but half an hour. All she knew of the world was contained in the glimpse she had secured of the busy street facing her window. All she knew of people lay in the actions of the group of women which had stood before her on the other side of the window pane and criticized the fit of her dress or remarked on its stylish appearance. So she had little enough to think about, and her thoughts moved somewhat slowly. Yet one thing she really decided on, and that was not to remain in the window and just be stared at by a lot of women who were not nearly so handsome or well-dressed as herself. By the time she reached this important conclusion, it was after midnight, but dim lights were burning in the big deserted store, so she crept through the door of her window and walked down the long aisles. She paused now and then to look with much curiosity at the wealth of finery confronting her on every side. When she came to the glass cases filled with trim hats, she remembered that she had seen these hats on the heads of women in the street. So she selected one that suited her fancy and placed it carefully on her yellow locks. I won't attempt to explain what instinct it was that made her glance into a nearby mirror to see if the hat was straight. But this she certainly did. It didn't correspond with her dress very well, but the poor thing was too young to have much taste in matching colors. When she reached the glove counter, she remembered that gloves were also worn by the women she had seen. She took a pair from the case and tried to fit them on her stiff, wax-coated fingers, but the gloves were too small and ripped in the seams. Then she tried another pair, and several others as well, but hours passed before she finally succeeded in getting her hands covered with a pair of pea-green gloves. Next, she selected a parasol from a large and varied assortment in the rear of the store. Not that she had any idea what a parasol was used for, but other ladies carried such things, so she also would have one. When she again examined herself critically in the mirror, she decided her outfit was now complete, and to her inexperienced eyes, there was no perceptible difference between her and the women who stood outside the window. When she tried to leave the store, she found every door locked. The wax lady was in no hurry. She had inherited patience from her previous existence. Just to be alive and to wear beautiful clothes was sufficient enjoyment for her at the moment. 
So she sat down on a stool and waited quietly until daylight. When the janitor unlocked the door in the morning, the wax lady swept past him and walked with stiff but stately strides down the street. The poor fellow was so completely wuckered at seeing the well-known wax lady leave her window and march away from the store that he fell over in a heap and only saved himself from fainting by striking his funny bone against the doorstep. When he recovered his wits, she had turned the corner and disappeared. The wax lady's immature mind had reasoned that, since she'd come to life, her evident duty was to mix with the world and do whatever other folks did. She couldn't realize how different she was from people of flesh and blood, nor did she know she was the first dummy that had ever lived, or that she owed her unique experience to Tinkle Mankey's love of mischief. So, ignorance gave her confidence in herself that she was not justly entitled to. It was yet early in the day, and the few people she met were hurrying along the streets. Many of them turned into restaurants and eating houses, and following their example, the wax lady also entered one and sat on a stool before a lunch counter. Coffee and rolls, said a shop girl on the next stool. Coffee and rolls, repeated the dummy, and soon the waiter placed them before her. Of course, she had no appetite, as her constitution, being mostly wood, didn't require food. But she watched the shop girl and saw her put the coffee to her mouth and drink it. Therefore, the wax lady did the same, and the next instant was surprised to feel the hot liquid trickling out between her wooden ribs. The coffee also blistered her wax lips, and so disagreeable was the experience that she rose up and left the restaurant, paying no attention to the demand of the waiter for twenty cents, mum. Not that she intended to defraud him, but the poor creature had no idea what he meant by twenty cents, mum. As she came out, she met the window trimmer at Plowman's store. The man was rather nearsighted, but seeing something familiar in the lady's features, he politely raised his hat. The wax lady also raised her hat, thinking it was the proper thing to do, and the man hurried away with a horrified face. Then a woman touched her arm and said, Beg your pardon, ma'am, but there's a price mark hanging on your dress behind. Yes, I know, replied the wax lady stiffly. It was originally twenty dollars, but it's been reduced to nineteen dollars and ninety-eight cents. The woman looked surprised at such indifference and walked on. 
some carriages were standing at the edge of the sidewalk, and seeing the dummy hesitate, a driver approached her and touched his cap. Cap, ma'am, he asked. No, she said, misunderstanding him. I'm wax. Oh, he exclaimed, and looked after her curiously. Here's your morning paper, yelled a newsboy. Mine, did you say? she asked. Sure, Chronicle, Inquirer, Republican Dispatch. What do y'all have? What are they for? inquired the wax lady, simply. Why, to read, of course, all the news you know. She shook her head and glanced at a paper. It looks all speckled and mixed up, she said. I'm afraid I can't read. Ever been to school? asked the boy, becoming interested. No. What school? she inquired. The boy gave her a funny look. Say, he cried. You're just a dummy. That's what you are. And ran away to seek a more promising customer. I wonder what he means, thought the poor lady. Am I really different in some way from all the others? I look like them, certainly, and I try to act like them. Yet that boy called me a dummy and seemed to think I acted differently. This idea worried her a little, but she walked on to the corner where she noticed a streetcar stop to let some people on. The wax lady, still determined to do as others did, also boarded the car and sat down quietly in a corner. After riding a few blocks, the conductor approached her and said, Fare, please. What's that? she inquired innocently. Your fare, said the man impatiently. She stared at him stupidly, trying to think what he meant. Come, come, growled the conductor. Either pay up or get off. Still, she didn't understand, and he grabbed her rudely by the arm and lifted her to her feet. But when his hand came in contact with the hard wood of which her arm was made, the fellow was filled with surprise. He stooped down and peered into her face, and seeing it was wax instead of flesh, he gave a yell of fear and jumped from the car, running as if he'd seen a ghost. At this, the other passengers also yelled and sprang from the car, fearing a collision, and the motorman, knowing something was wrong, also followed suit. The wax lady, seeing the others run, jumped from the car last of all, and stepped in front of another car coming at full speed from the opposite direction. She heard cries of fear and warnings from all sides, but before she understood her danger, she was knocked down and dragged for half a block 
was brought to a stop, a policeman reached down and pulled her from under the wheels. Her dress was badly torn and soiled. Her left ear was gone, and the left side of her head was damaged. But she quickly scrambled to her feet and asked for her hat. This a gentleman had already picked up, and when the policeman handed it to her and noticed the great hole in her head and the hollow place it disclosed, the poor fellow trembled so frightfully that his knees actually knocked together. Why, why, ma'am, you're very, very damaged, he gasped. What does that matter? said the wax lady. The policeman shuddered and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. The crowd that had collected were looking at the lady in wonder, and a middle-aged gentleman now exclaimed, Why, she's made of wax. Wax, echoed the policeman. Certainly, she's one of those dummies they put in the windows to clear the middle-aged man. The people who had collected shouted, You're right. That's what she is. She's a dummy. Are you? inquired the policeman sternly. The wax lady didn't reply. She began to fear she was getting into trouble, and this staring crowd seemed to embarrass her. Suddenly, Someone attempted to solve the problem by saying, You guys is all wrong. Can a dummy talk? Can a dummy walk? Can a dummy live? Hush, murmured the policeman. Look here. And he pointed to the hole in the lady's head. The newsboy looked, turned pale, and whistled to keep himself from shivering. A second policeman now arrived, and after a brief conference, it was decided to take the strange creature to headquarters. So they called a hurry-up wagon, and the damaged wax lady was helped inside and driven to the police station. There, the policeman locked her in a cell and hastened to tell Inspector Mugg their wonderful story. Inspector Mugg had just eaten a poor breakfast was not in a pleasant mood, so he roared and stormed at the unlucky policemen, saying they were themselves dummies to bring such a fairy tale to a man of sense. He also hinted that they had been guilty of intemperance. The policemen tried to explain, but Inspector Mugg wouldn't listen, and while they were still disputing, in rushed Mr. Floman, the owner of the department store. I want a dozen detectives at once, Inspector, he cried. What for? demanded Mug. One of the wax ladies has escaped from my store and eloped with a $19.98 costume, a $4.23 hat, a $2.19 parasol, and a seventy-six-cent pair of gloves, and I want her arrested. While he paused for breath, 
crazy at the same time? He inquired sarcastically. How could a wax dummy run away? I don't know, but she did. When my janitor opened the door this morning, he saw her run out. Well, why didn't he stop her? asked Muck. He was too frightened, but she's stolen my property, Your Honor, and I want her arrested, declared the shopkeeper. The inspector thought for a moment. You wouldn't be able to prosecute her, he said. There's no law against dummy stealing. Mr. Floman sighed bitterly. Am I to lose that $19.98 costume and that $4.25 hat and, by no means, interrupted Inspector Muck, the police of this city are ever prompt to act in defense of our worthy citizens. We've already arrested the wax lady and she is locked up in cell number 16. You may go there and recover your property if you wish. But before you prosecute her for stealing, you'd better hunt up a law that applies to dummies. All I want, said Mr. Floman, is that $19.98 costume and... Come along, interrupted the policeman. I'll take you to the cell. But when they entered number 16, they found... Only a lifeless dummy lying prone on the floor. Its wax was cracked and blistered. Its head was badly damaged. And the bargain costume was dusty, soiled, and much bedraggled. For the mischief-loving Tinkle had flown by and breathed once more on the poor wax lady and in that instant her brief life ended. It's just as I thought, said Inspector Muck, leaning back in his chair contently. I knew all the time the thing was a fake. It seems sometimes as though the whole world would go crazy if there wasn't some level-headed person around to bring them all to their senses. Dummies are wood and wax. That's all there is of them. Perhaps, whispered the policeman to himself, but I think there's more than one dummy here. The Man and the Butterfly by Alfred Baum A man named Darren once lived in a faraway land called Farland, and he was so exceedingly cross and disagreeable that everyone hated him. He snarled and stormed at every person he met, and was never known to laugh or to be merry under any circumstances. He especially hated boys and girls because the boys jeered at him, which aroused his wrath, and the girls made fun of him, which hurt his pride. When he had become so unpopular that 
no one would speak to him. The king of Farland heard about it and commanded the mean man to emigrate to America. This suited Darren very well, but before he left Farland, he stole the great book of magic that belonged to a wise magician. Then, gathering up his small amount of money, he took a ship to America. He settled in a city of the Middle West and started a laundry business. He put up a red and white sign and people brought their laundry to him and got paper checks with Farland characters on them in exchange. This being the only sort of character Darren had left. One day, as the mean man was ironing in his shop in the basement up 263 and a half Main Street, he looked up and he saw a crowd of childish faces pressed against the window. Most Farland men make fun of friends with children. This one hated them and tried to drive them away. But as soon as he returned to his work, they were back at the window again, mischievously smiling down on him. Darren uttered horrid words in his home language and made fierce gestures. But this did no good at all. The children stayed as long as they pleased, and they came again the very next day as soon as school was over, and likewise the next day, and the next. The children saw that their presence at the window bothered the Varlin man, and were delighted accordingly. The following day being Sunday, the children didn't appear, but as Darren, being a heathen, was working in his little shop, a big butterfly flew in through the open door and fluttered about the room. Darren closed the door and chased the butterfly until he caught it. When he pinned it against the wall, by sticking two pins through its beautiful wings. This didn't hurt the butterfly, there being no feelings in its wings, but it did make the butterfly a prisoner. This butterfly was of large size, and its wings were exquisitely marked by gorgeous colors laid out in irregular designs like the stained glass windows of a cathedral. Darren now opened his wooden chest and drew forth the great book of magic that he had stolen. Turning the pages slowly, he came to a passage describing how to understand the language of butterflies. This he read carefully and then mixed a magic formula in a tin cup and drank it down with a wry face. 
Immediately thereafter he spoke to the butterfly in its own language, saying, Why did you enter this room? I smell beeswax, answered the butterfly. Therefore I thought I might find some honey here. But you are my prisoner, said Darren. If I please, I can kill you or leave you on the wall to starve to death. I expect that, replied the butterfly with a sigh. But my race is short-lived anyway. It doesn't matter whether death comes sooner or later. Yet, you like to live, do you not? asked Darren. Yes, life is pleasant and the world is beautiful. So I don't seek death. Then, said Darren, I will give you life, a long and pleasant life, if you will promise to obey me for a time and carry out my instructions. How can a butterfly serve a man? asked the creature in surprise. Usually they can't, Darren replied, but I have a book of magic which teaches me strange things. So, do you promise? Oh yes, I promise, answered the butterfly. Because if you killed me, then that's the end of everything. Truly, said Darren, butterflies have no souls and therefore cannot live again. But I've enjoyed three lives already, returned the butterfly with some pride. I've been a caterpillar and a chrysalis before I became a butterfly. You were never anything but a farland man, although I admit your life is longer than mine. Well, I'll extend your life for many days if you obey me, declared the Farland man. I can easily do so by means of my magic. Of course I'll obey you, said the butterfly carelessly. Then listen, you know children, do you not, boys and girls? Yes, I, I know them. They chase me and try to catch me, as you have done, replied the butterfly. And they mock me and jeer at me through the window, continued Darren bitterly. Therefore, they are your enemies and mine. But with your aid and the help of the magic book, we shall have a fine revenge for their insults. I don't really care much for revenge, said the butterfly. They are but children, and it's natural they should wish to catch such a beautiful creature as I am. Well, nevertheless, 
because I do care, and you must obey me, retorted Darren harshly. I at least will have my revenge. Then he stuck a drop of molasses on the wall beside the butterfly's head and said, Eat that while I read from my book and prepare my magic formula. So the butterfly feasted on the molasses, and Darren studied his book, after which he began to mix a magic compound in the tin cup. When the mixture was ready, he released the butterfly from the wall and said to it, I command you to dip your two front feet into this magic compound and then fly away until you meet a child. Fly close, whether it be a boy or a girl, and touch the child on his forehead with your feet. Whoever is thus touched, the book declares, will at once become a pig and will remain such forever after. Then return to me and dip your legs again in the contents of this cup. So shall all my enemies, the children, become miserable swine, while no one will think of accusing me of the sorcery. Very well, since such is your command, I obey, said the butterfly. Then it dipped its front legs, which were the shortest of the six, into the contents of the tin cup and flew out of the door and away over the houses to the edge of the town. There it landed in a flower garden and soon forgot all about its mission to turn children into swine. In going from flower to flower, it soon brushed the magic compound from its legs so that when the sun began to set and the butterfly finally remembered its master, Darren, it couldn't have injured a child had it tried, but it didn't intend to try. That horrid old farley man, the butterfly thought, he hates children and wishes to destroy them, but I rather like children myself, and shall not harm them. Of course I must return to my master, for he is a magician and would seek me out and kill me, but I can deceive him about this matter easily enough. When the butterfly flew in at the door of Darren's laundry, he asked eagerly, Well, did you meet a child? I did, replied the butterfly, calmly. It was a pretty, golden-haired girl, but now she's a grunting pig. Good, 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 cried Darren, dancing joyfully about the room. You shall have molasses for your supper, and tomorrow change two children into pigs. The butterfly didn't reply and ate the molasses.
classes in silence. Having no soul and having no conscience, it was able to lie to Darren with great readiness and a certain amount of enjoyment. The next morning, by Darren's command, the butterfly dipped its legs in the mixture and flew away in search of children. When it came to the edge of the town, it noticed a pig in a sty and landed on the rail of the sty, then looked down at the creature and thought, If I could change a child into a pig by touching it with the magic compound, what could I change a pig into, I wonder? Being curious to determine this fine point in sorcery, the butterfly fluttered down and touched its front feet to the pig's nose. Instantly the animal disappeared, and in its place was a shock-headed, dirty-looking boy, which sprang from the sty and ran down the road uttering loud whoops. That's funny, said the butterfly to itself. Darren would be very angry with me if he knew of this because I have liberated one more of the creatures that bother him. The butterfly fluttered along after the boy, who had paused to throw stones at a cat, but the cat escaped by running up a tree where thick branches protected her from the stones. Then the boy discovered a newly planted garden and trampled on the beds until the seeds were scattered far and wide, and the garden was ruined. Next he caught up a stick, and struck with it a young calf that stood quietly grazing in a field. The poor creature ran away, and the boy laughed and followed after it, striking the frightened animal again and again, until it finally escaped. Really, thought the butterfly. I don't wonder Darren hates children, if they are all so cruel and wicked as this one. The boy came back to the road, where he met two little girls on their way to school. One of them had a red apple in her hand, and the boy snatched it away and began eating it. The little girl commenced to cry. But her companion, more brave and sturdy, cried out, You ought to be ashamed of yourself, you nasty boy. Although possessed of neither soul nor conscience, the butterfly had a very tender heart, and now decided it couldn't endure this boy any longer. If I permitted him to exist, it reflected. I should never forgive myself, for the monster would do nothing but evil from morning till night. So it flew directly into its face and touched his forehead with its sticky front feet. The next instant the boy had disappeared, but a grunting pig ran swiftly up the road in the direction of its sty. The 
butterfly gave a sigh of relief. This time I have indeed used Darren's magic on a child, it whispered as it floated lazily on the light breeze. But since the child was originally a pig, I don't think I have any cause to reproach myself. The little girls were sweet and gentle, and I wouldn't injure them to save my life. But were all boys like this transformed pig, I shouldn't hesitate to carry out Darren's orders. Then it flew into a rose bush, where it remained comfortably until evening. At sundown, it returned to its master. Have you changed two children into pigs? Darren asked at once. I have, replied the butterfly. One was a pretty black-eyed baby, and the other was a freckle-faced, red-haired, barefooted boy. Good, 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 screamed Darren in an ecstasy of delight. Those are the ones who torment me the most. Change every boy you meet into a pig. Very well, answered the butterfly quietly and ate its supper of molasses. Several days passed in the same manner. It fluttered aimlessly about the flower gardens while the sun shone and returned at night to Darren with false tales of turning children into swine. Sometimes it would be one child which was transformed, sometimes two, and occasionally three. But Darren always greeted the butterfly's report with intense delight and gave him molasses for supper. One evening, however, the butterfly thought it might be well to bury the report so that Darren might not grow suspicious. And when its master asked what child had been changed into a pig that day, the lying creature answered, It was a varlin boy, and when I touched him, he became a pig. This angered Darren, who was in an especially cross mood. He spitefully snapped at the butterfly with his finger and almost broke its beautiful wing, for he forgot that Farland boys had once mocked him and only remembered his hatred for American boys. The butterfly became very indignant at this abuse from Darren. It refused to eat its molasses and sulked all the evening, for it had grown to hate Darren almost as much as Darren hated children. When morning came, it was still trembling with indignation, but Darren cried out, Make haste, miserable slave, for today you must change four children into pigs to make up for yesterday. The butterfly didn't reply. His little black eyes were sparkling wickedly, and no 
sooner had he dipped his feet into the magic compound than he flew full in Darren's face and touched him on his forehead. Soon after, a gentleman came into the room for his laundry. Darren was not there, but running around the place was a repulsive scrawny pig which squealed most miserably. The butterfly flew away to a brook and washed from its feet all traces of the magic compound. When night came, it happily and peacefully fell asleep in a sweet-smelling rose bush. This story behind Little Miss Muffet by Elfring Baum. Little Miss Muffet's father was a big banker in a big city, and he had so much money that the house he lived in was almost as beautiful as a king's palace. It was built of granite and marble and richly furnished with every luxury that money can buy. There was an army of servants about the house, and many of them had no other duties than to wait on Miss Muffet, for the little girl was an only child, and therefore a person of great importance. She had a maid to dress her hair, and a maid to bathe her, a maid to serve her at table, and a maid to tie her shoes, and several maids besides that. And then there was Nurse Hollowick to look after all the maids and see that they did their tasks properly. The child's father spent his days at his office and his evenings at his club. His mother was a leader in society and therefore fully engaged from morning till night and from night till morning. So little Miss Muffet seldom saw her parents and scarcely knew them when she did see them. Her real birth name is a curiosity. Perhaps she did not know it herself, for everyone had called her Miss Muffet since she could remember. The servant spoke of her respectfully as Miss Muffet. Miss Muffet would say at times, By the way, nurse, how is Miss Muffet getting along? And Mr. Muffet, when he met his little daughter by chance on the walk or in the hallway, would stop and look at her gravely and say, So, this is Miss Muffet. Well, how are you feeling, little one? And then, without heeding her answer, he would walk away. Perhaps you think that Miss Muffet, surrounded by every luxury and with a dozen servants to wait on her, was happy and contented. But such was not the case. She wanted to run and romp, but they told her it was unladylike 
she wished to play with other children, but none were rich enough to be proper associates for her. She longed to dig in the garden, but Nurse Hollowick was shocked at the very thought. So Miss Muffet became sullen and irritable and scolded everyone about her and lived a very unhappy life. Her food was too rich and it gave her dyspepsia so that she grew thin and pale and didn't sleep well at night. One afternoon her mother, who happened to be at home for an hour, suddenly thought of her little daughter. So she rang the bell and asked for Nurse Hollowick. How is Miss Muffet, nurse? inquired the lady. Very badly, ma'am, was the reply. Badly? What do you mean? Is she ill? She's far from well, ma'am, answered the nurse. And seems to be getting worse every day. Well, replied the lady, you must have the doctor to see her, and don't forget to let me know what he says. That is all, nurse. She turned to her novel again, and the nurse walked away and sent a servant for the doctor. That great man, when he came, shook his head and solemnly said, She must have a change. Take her away into the country as soon as possible. And very good advice it was, too, remarked the nurse to one of the maids. For I feel as if I needed to change myself. When she reported the matter to Miss Muffet, the mother answered, Very well. I will see Mr. Muffet and have him write out a check. And so it was that a week later, little Miss Muffet went to the country, or rather to a small town where there was a summer hotel that had been highly recommended to Nurse Hollowick, and with her went a string of maids and a wagon load of boxes and trunks. The morning after their arrival, the little girl asked to go out on the lawn. Well, replied Nurse Holloway, Sarah can take you for half an hour, but remember, you are not to run and get heated, for that will ruin your complexion, and you must not speak to any of the common children you meet, for your mother would object, and you must not get your shoes dusty, nor your dress soiled, nor disobey Sarah in any way. Miss Muffet went out in a very angry and sulky mood. What's the use of being in the country, she thought, if I must act just as I did in the city? I don't like Nurse Hollowick and Sarah and all the rest of them. If I dared, I'd just, I'd just run away. Indeed, a few minutes later, when Sarah had fallen asleep on a bench under a big shade tree, Miss Muffet decided she would finally run away for good and just see how that went.
was a pretty lane nearby, running between shady trees far out into the country and stealing softly away from Sarah's side. The little girl ran as fast as she could and never stopped until she was all out of breath. While she rested and wondered what she could do next, a farmer came along, driving an empty cart. I'll catch on behind, said Miss Muffet gleefully, just as I've seen the boys do in the city. Won't it be fun? So she ran and caught on the end of the cart and actually climbed into it, falling all in a heap on the straw that lay on the bottom of the cart. But it didn't hurt at all, and the next minute the farmer whipped up his horses, and they went trotting along the lane, carrying Miss Muffet farther and farther away from Nurse Hollowack and those dreadful maids. She looked around on the green fields and the waving grain, and drew in deep breaths of the fresh country air, and was happy for almost the first time in her little life. By and by, she lay back on the straw and fell asleep, and the farmer, who didn't know she was in his cart, drove on for many miles, until at last he stopped at a small wooden farmhouse and jumped to the ground. A woman came to the door to greet him, and he said to her, We're home again, you see. So I see. She answered. But did you bring my groceries? Yes, he replied, as he began to unharness the horses. They are in the cart. So she came to the cart and looked within, and saw Miss Muffet, who was still asleep. Ah, uh, where did you get the little girl? asked the farmer's wife, in surprise. Oh, uh, what little girl? he asked. The one in the cart. He came to the cart and looked in, and was as surprised as his wife. She must have climbed into the cart when I left the town, he said. But waken her, and we will hear what she has to say. So the farmer's wife shook the girl by the arm. And Miss Muffet sat up in the cart and rubbed her eyes and wondered where she was. How did you come about to be in my cart? asked the farmer. I just caught on from behind and climbed in, answered the girl. What is your name and where do you live? inquired the farmer's wife. My name is Miss Muffet and I live in a big city, but exactly where I don't know. And that was all she could tell them. So the woman said at last, We must keep her till someone comes to claim her, and she can earn her living by helping me make the cheeses. That will be nice, said Miss Muffet with a laugh, because Nurse Holloway never lets me do anything 
and I should like to help somebody do something. So they led her into the house, where the farmer's wife wondered at the fine texture of her dress, and admired the golden chain that hung around her neck. Someone will surely come for her, the woman said to her husband, for she is richly dressed and must belong to a family of some importance. Nevertheless, when they had eaten dinner, for which her little Miss Muffet had a wonderful appetite, the woman took her into the dairy and told her how she could assist her in curdling the milk and preparing it for the cheese press. Why, it's really fun to work, said the girl at first, and I should like to live here always. I do hope Nurse Hollowick will never find me. After a time, however, she grew weary and wanted to rest. But the woman had not yet finished her cheese-making, so she bade the girl keep at her tasks. It's time enough to rest when the work is done, she said. And if you stay with me, you must earn your board. No one is allowed to idle in this house. So little Miss Muffet, though she felt like crying and was very tired, kept at her work until at length all was finished and the last cheese was in the press. Now, said the farmer's wife, since you've worked so well, I shall give you a dish of curds and whey for your supper, and you may go out into the orchard and eat it under the shade of trees. Little Miss Muffet had never eaten curds and whey before, and didn't know how they tasted, but she was very hungry, so she took the dish and went into the orchard. She first looked around for a place to sit down, and finally discovered a little grassy mound, which is called a tuffet in the country, and seated herself on it. Then she tasted the curds and whey, and found them very good. But while she was eating, she chanced to look down at her feet, and there was a great black spider coming straight towards her. The girl had never seen such an enormous and hideous-looking spider before, and she was so frightened that she gave a scream and dipped backwards off the tuffet spilling the curds and whey all over her dress as she did so. This frightened her more than ever, and as soon as she could get on her feet, she scampered to the farmhouse as fast as she could go, crying bitterly as she ran. The farmer's wife tried to comfort her, and Miss Muffet, between her sobs, said she'd seen the awfulest, biggest, blackest spider in the world. This made the woman laugh, for she wasn't afraid of spiders. Soon after, they heard a sound of wheels on the road, and a handsome carriage came dashing up to the gate. Has anyone seen a little girl who has run away? asked Nurse Hollowick, leaning out of the carriage. Oh yes, answered little Miss Muffet 
here I am, nurse. And she ran out and jumped into the carriage, for she was very glad to get back again to those who would care for her and not ask her to work making cheeses. When they were driving back to the town, the nurse said, You must promise me, Miss Muffet, never to run away again. You frighten me nearly into hysterics. And had you been lost, your mother would have been quite disappointed. The little girl was silent for a time. Then she answered, I will promise not to run away if you let me play as other children do. But if you don't allow me to run and romp and dig in the ground, I shall keep running away, no matter how many horrid spiders come to frighten me. And Nurse Hollowick, who had been really much alarmed at so nearly losing her precious charge, thought it was wise to agree to Miss Muffet's terms. She kept her word, too, and when little Miss Muffet went back to her home in the city, her cheeks were as red as roses, and her eyes sparkled with health. And she grew, in time, to be a beautiful young lady, and as healthy and robust as she was beautiful. Seeing which, the doctor put an extra large fee in his bill for advising that the little girl be taken to the country, and Mr. Muffet paid it without a word of protest. Even after Miss Muffet grew up and was married, she never forgot the day that she ran away, nor the curds and whey she ate for supper, and nor the great spider that frightened her away from the Duffet. The King of the Polar Bears by Alfred Baum of the polar bears lived among the icebergs in the far north country. He was old and monstrous and big, but he was also wise and friendly to all who knew him. His body was thickly covered with long, white hair that glistened like silver under the rays of the midnight sun. His claws were strong and sharp, so that he could walk safely over the smooth ice, or grasp and tear the fishes and seals on which he fed. The seals were afraid when he drew near, and tried to avoid him, but the gulls, both white gulls and gray gulls, loved him because he left the remnants of his feasts for them to devour. Often the subjects, the polar bears, came to him for advice when ill or in trouble, but they wisely kept away from his hunting grounds, lest they might interfere with his sport and arouse his anger. The wolves, who sometimes came as far north as the icebergs, whispered among themselves that the king of the polar bears was either a magician 
you felt no shame at his feathery covering, but it was still strange to him, and he avoided meeting any of his brother bears. When the moon fell away from the sky, and the sun came to make the icebergs glitter with the gorgeous tintings of the rainbow, two of the polar bears arrived at the king's cavern to ask his advice about the hunting season. But when they saw his great body covered with feathers instead of hair, they began to laugh, and one said, Our mighty king has become a bird. Whoever heard of a feathered polar bear? Then the king gave way to wrath. He advanced on them with deep growls and a fierce brow. They ran away and carried the news of the king's strange appearance. The result was a meeting of all the polar bears on a broad field of ice, where they talked gravely of the remarkable change that had come on their monarch. He is, in reality, no longer a bear, said one, nor can he justly be called a bird, but he is half bird and half bear, and so that is unfitting to remain as our king. Then, who shall take his place? asked another. He who can fight the bird bear and overcome it, answered an aged member of the group. Only the strongest is fit to rule our race. There was silence for a time, but at length a great bear moved forward to the front and said, I will fight him. I, Wolf, the strongest of our race, and I will be king of the polar bears. The others nodded in agreement and dispatched a messenger to the king to say he must fight the great wolf and master him or lose his reign. For a bear with feathers, added the messenger, is no bear at all and the king we obey must resemble the rest of us. I wear feathers because it pleases me, growled the king. Am I not a great magician? But I will fight nevertheless, and if Wolf masters me, he shall be king. Then he visited his friends, the gulls, and told them of the coming battle. I shall conquer, he said proudly. Yet my people are in the right, for only a hairy one like themselves can hope to command their obedience. The queen gull said, I met an eagle yesterday, which had made its escape from a big city of men and the eagle told me he had seen a huge polar bear fur thrown over the back of a carriage that rolled along the street. That fur must have been yours, O king, 
and if you wish, I will send a hundred of my gulls to the city to bring it back to you. Yes, send them, said the king, and the hundred gulls were soon flying rapidly southward. For three days they flew straight as an arrow, until they came to scattered houses, to villages, and to cities. Then their search began. The gulls were brave and cunning and wise. On the fourth day they reached the great metropolis and hovered over the streets until a carriage rolled along with a great white bear fur thrown over the back seat. Then the birds swooped down, all hundred of them, and seized the fur in their beaks then flew quickly away. But they were running late. The king's great battle was on the seventh day, and they must fly swiftly to reach the polar regions by that time. Meanwhile, the king bird bear was preparing for his fight. He sharpened his claws in the small crevices of the ice and practiced lunging at the air. The queen gull set her band to grooming the king bear's feathers until they lay smoothly on his body. But every day they cast anxious glances into the southern sky, watching for the hundred gulls to bring back the king's fur. The seventh day came, and all the polar bears in that region gathered around the king's cavern. Among them was Wolf strong and confident of his success. The bird's bare feathers will fly fast enough when I get my claws on him, he boasted, and the others laughed and encouraged him. The king was disappointed in not having recovered his fur, but he resolved to fight bravely without it. He advanced from the opening of his cavern with a proud, and kingly bearing. When he faced his enemy, he gave so terrible a growl that Wolf's heart stopped beating for a moment, and he began to realize that a fight with the wise and mighty king was no laughing matter. After exchanging one or two heavy blows with his foe, Wolf's courage returned and he determined to dishearten the king by casting jeers at him. Come nearer, you bird bear, he cried. Come nearer, that I may pluck your plumage. The defiance filled the king with rage. He ruffled his feathers, as a bird does, till he appeared to be twice his actual size and then he strode forward and struck Wolf so powerfully that Wolf immediately exclaimed defeat. While the assembled bears stood looking with fear and wonder at their defeated Wolf, the sky became darkened. A hundred gulls flew down from above and dropped on the king's body a fur of pure white hair that glittered in the sun like silver. And behold, 
truths are before them, the well-known form of that wise and respected master. And at once they bowed their shaggy heads in respect to the mighty king of the polar bears. And a closing note from L. Frank Baum states, quote, The story teaches us that true dignity and courage depend not on outward appearances. End quote. Now I'll finish up with a short bio about L. Frank Baum. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia page titled L. Frank Baum. I'll start with a short overview. Lyman Frank Baum, born in 1856, was an American author, chiefly famous for his children's books, particularly The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and its sequels. He wrote 14 novels in the Oz series, plus 41 other novels, 83 short stories, over 200 poems, and at least 42 scripts. He made numerous attempts to bring his works to the stage in the nascent medium of film, the 1939 adaptation of the first Oz book would become a landmark of 20th century cinema. His works anticipated such century-later commonplaces as television, augmented reality, laptop computers, wireless telephones, women in high-risk and action-heavy occupations, and the ubiquity of advertising on clothing. The next section is about his childhood and early life. Baum was born in Chattanooga, New York, in 1856 into a devout Methodist family. He was the seventh of nine children, only five of whom survived into adulthood. Lyman was the name of his father's brother, but he always disliked it and preferred his middle name, Frank. As a child, Frank was a sickly, dreamy child, tutored at home with his siblings. From the age of 12, he spent two miserable years at a military academy, but after being severely disciplined for daydreaming, he had a possible psychogenic heart attack and was allowed to return home. Baum started writing early in life, possibly prompted by his father buying him a cheap printing press. He had always been close to his younger brother, Henry, or Harry Clay Baum, who helped in the production of the Rose Lawn Home Journal. The brothers published several issues of the journal, including advertisements for local businesses which they would give to family and friends for free. By the age of 17, 
Baum established a second amateur journal called The Stamp Collector, printed an 11-page pamphlet called Baum's Complete Stamp Dealer's Directory, and started a stamp dealership with friends. At 20, Baum took on the national craze of breeding fancy poultry. In March 1880, he established a monthly trade journal, The Poultry Record, and in 1886, when Baum was 30 years old, his first book was published about poultry. Baum had a flair for being the spotlight of fun in the household, including during times of financial difficulties. At Christmas time, he dressed as Santa Claus for the family. His father would place the Christmas tree behind a curtain in the front parlor so that Baum could talk to everyone while he decorated the tree without people managing to see him. He maintained this tradition all of his life. And the last section will be about his career. Baum embarked on his lifetime infatuation and wavering financial success with the theater. A local theatrical company duped him into replenishing the stock of costumes on the promise of leading roles coming his way. Disillusioned, Baum left the theater temporarily and went to work as a clerk in his brother-in-law's dry goods company in Syracuse. But Baum could never stay away long from the stage. In 1880, his father built him a theater in Ridgeburg, New York, and Baum wrote plays and gathered a company to act in them. On November 9, 1882, Baum married the daughter of a famous woman suffrage and feminist activist. In July 1888, Baum and his wife moved to Aberdeen, Dakota Territory, where he opened a store called Baum's Bazaar. His habit of giving out wares on credit led to the eventual bankrupting of the store, so Baum turned to editing the local newspaper, the Aberdeen Saturday Pioneer, where he wrote the column, Our Landlady. Baum's description of Kansas in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is based on his experiences in drought-ridden South Dakota. Baum's newspaper failed in 1891, and he moved with his family to the Humboldt Park section of Chicago, where Baum took a job reporting for the Evening Post. Beginning in 1897, he founded an editor magazine called The Show Window, which focused on store window displays, retail strategies, and visual merchandising. In 1900, Baum published a book about window displays in which he stressed the importance of mannequins in drawing customers. He also had to work as a traveling salesman. In 1897, he wrote and published 
Mother Goose in Prose, a collection of Mother Goose rhymes written as prose stories. Mother Goose was a moderate success and allowed Baum to quit his sales job, which had had a negative impact on his health. In 1899, Baum partnered with illustrator W. W. Denslow to publish Father Goose, his book, a collection of nonsense poetry. The book was a success, becoming the best-selling children's book of the year. In 1900, Baum and Denslow, with whom he shared the copyright, published The Wonderful Wizard of Oz to much critical acclaim and financial success. The book was the best-selling children's book for two years after its initial publication. Baum went on to write 13 more novels based on the places and people of the Land of Oz. Tonight's story is The Pumpkin Giant by Mary Wilkins Freeman. A very long time ago, there were no pumpkins. People had never eaten a pumpkin pie or even eaten stewed pumpkin. And that was the time when the pumpkin giant flourished. There have been a great many giants who have flourished since the world began. And although a select few of them have been good giants, the majority of them have been so bad that their crimes, even more than their size, have gone to make them notorious. But the pumpkin giant was an uncommonly bad one, and his general appearance and his behavior were such as to make one shudder to an extent that you would hardly believe possible. The convulsive shivering caused by the mere mention of his name, and in some cases, where the people were unusually sensitive, by the mere thought of him, caused people to experience what was called the giant shakes. The pumpkin giant was very tall. He probably would have overtopped most of the giants you've ever heard of. I don't suppose the giant who lived on the beanstalk whom Jack visited was anything to compare with him, nor that it would have been a possible thing for the pumpkin giant had he received an invitation to spend an afternoon with the beanstalk giant to accept on account of his inability to enter the beanstalk giant's door, no matter how much he stooped. The pumpkin giant had a very large yellow head, which was also smooth and shiny. His eyes were big and round, 
and glowed like coals of fire, and you would have almost thought that his head was lit up inside with candles. Indeed, there was a rumor that effect amongst the common people, but that was all nonsense, of course. No one of the more enlightened class credited it for an instant. His mouth, which stretched half around his head, was furnished with rows of pointed teeth, and he was never known to hold it in any other way than wide open. The pumpkin giant lived in a castle because it's not fashionable for a giant to live in any other kind of a dwelling. Nothing would be more tame and uninteresting than a giant in a two-story white house with green blinds and a picket fence, or even a brownstone front, if he could get into either of them, which he could not. The giant's castle was situated on a mountain, as it ought to have been. There was also the usual courtyard before it, and the customary moat, which it was full of bones. All I have to say about these bones is, they were not mutton bones. A great many details of this story must be left to your imagination. They're just too harrowing to relate. Although I will disclose, the pumpkin giant had an appetite for naughty little boys and girls. But on the other hand, good little boys and girls never had anything to worry about. The fear and horror of this giant extended over the whole country. Even the king on his throne was so afflicted with the giant shakes that he had been obliged to have the throne propped for fear it should topple over in some unusually violent fit. There was good reason why the king shook. His only daughter, the Princess Diante, was probably the naughtiest princess in the whole world at that date. The princess was never allowed to leave the palace without a bodyguard of fifty knights. The very flower of the king's troops with lances and rest. But in spite of all of this precaution, the king still shook. Meanwhile, amongst the ordinary people who could not procure an escort of fifty armed knights for the naughty ones among their children, the ravages of the pumpkin giant were frightful. It was apprehended at one time that there would be very few or no naughty little girls and boys at all left in the kingdom. And what made matters worse, at that time, 
giants commenced taking a tonic to increase his appetite. Finally, the king, in desperation, issued a proclamation that he would knight anyone, be he or she, noble or common, who should cut off the head of the pumpkin giant. This was the king's usual method of rewarding any noble deed in his kingdom. It was a cheap method, and besides, everybody liked to be a knight. When the king issued his proclamation, every person in the kingdom who was not already a knight straightway tried to contrive ways and means to kill the pumpkin giant. But there was one obstacle which seemed insurmountable. They were all afraid. All of them had the giant shakes so badly that they could not possibly have held a knife steady enough to cut off the giant's head, even if they had dared to go near enough for that purpose. There was one man who lived not far from the terrible giant's castle, a poor man, his only worldly wealth consisting in a large potato field and a cottage in front of it. He had a boy of twelve, an only son, who rivaled the princess Diante in point of naughtiness. He was unable to have a bodyguard for his son, so the amount of terror which the inhabitants of that humble cottage suffered day and night was heart-wrenching. The poor mother had been unable to leave her bed for two years on account of the giant shakes. The naughty boy's name was Malty. His father's name was Patoclus and his mother's name was Daphne. One morning, Patoclus and his little Malty were out in the field, digging potatoes, for new potatoes were just in the market. The early rose potato had not been discovered in those days, but there was another potato, perhaps equally good, which attained to a similar degree of celebrity. It was called the young patak, and reached a very large size indeed, much larger than the early roast potato does in our time. Well, Patoclus and Malty had just dug perhaps a bushel of young patak potatoes. It was slow work with them, for Patoclus had the giant shakes badly that morning, and, of course, Malty, being naughty, was not always very helpful. All at once, the earth trembled violently. Patoclus and Malty looked up and saw the pumpkin giant coming with his mouth wide open. Get behind me, O oh my darling son, 
us. Patroclus was not ordinarily a brave man, but he was brave in an emergency. The pumpkin giant strode along faster and faster, opening his mouth wider and wider until they could hear it crack at the corners. Then Patroclus picked up an enormous young potato and threw it plump into the pumpkin giant's mouth. The giant choked and gasped and choked and gasped and finally tumbled down and died. Now, while the giant went through this choking process, Patroclus and Malti had run to the house and locked themselves in. Then they looked out the window, and when they saw the giant tumble down and lie quite still, they knew he must be dead. Daphne was immediately cured of the giant shakes and got out of bed for the first time in two years. Patroclus sharpened the carving knife on the kitchen stove, and they all went out into the potato field. They cautiously approached the still giant, for fear he might be faking it, and suddenly spring up at them. But no, he didn't move at all. He was quite dead. So Patroclus gave the head of the giant to his son Malti to play with, of course. The king was notified of the death of the pumpkin giant and greatly rejoiced. His giant shake ceased. The props were removed from the throne and the princess Dianti was allowed to go out without her bodyguard of fifty knights. This was much to her delight, for she found fifty knights a great hindrance to the enjoyment of her daily outings. The king, though his gratitude for the noble deed knew no bounds, did not give the promised reward of night to Patroclus. Patroclus felt rather hurt about it. And Daphne would have liked to be a lady. But little Malti, he didn't care at all. Because he had the giant's head to play with. And that was reward enough for him. There was not a boy in the neighborhood. But envied him and his possession of such a unique plaything. Malti played so much with the giant's head that finally late in the fall it got broken and scattered all over the field. Next spring, all over Patroclus's potato field grew running vines, and in the fall they grew giant's heads. There they were, all over the field, hundreds of giant's heads 
was consternation indeed, the natural conclusion to be arrived at when the people saw the yellow giant's heads making their appearance above the ground was that the rest of the giants were coming. There was one pumpkin giant before, they said. Now there will be a whole army of them. If one pumpkin giant give us the shake so badly, what will a whole army of them do? But when some time had elapsed, and nothing more of the giants appeared above the surface of the potato field, and the heads had not yet displayed any sign of opening their mouths, the people began to feel a little more at ease. After a while, the general excitement subsided somewhat, although the king had ordered a bodyguard again for his princess Diante. Now Malti had been born with a propensity for putting everything into his mouth and tasting it. It's just a strange thing that some naughty boys do. Malti had become acquainted with the peculiar flavor of almost everything in his immediate vicinity, except the giant's heads. And, naturally enough, he cast longing eyes at them. Night and day, he wondered what a giant's head could taste like, until finally one day, when Patroclus was away, he stole out into the potato field, cut a little bit out of one of the giant's heads, and munched on it. It tasted very sweet and nice. He liked it so much that he cut off another piece and ate that also, then another and another, until he had eaten two-thirds of a giant's head. Then he thought it was about time for him to go in and tell his mother, expecting he might feel ill soon and need some kind of antidote. Mother, he said, walking slowly into the cottage, I have just eaten two-thirds of a giant's head, and I guess you better give me some kind of antidote. Oh, my naughty son, cried Daphne. How could you? She looked into her book of antidotes, but could not find an antidote for a giant's head. Oh, Malty, my dear naughty son, groaned Daphne. There is no antidote. What shall we do? Then she sat down and wept, and Malty wept too, as loud as he possibly could, because they didn't expect him to survive after eating a giant's head. When Patroclus came home, they told him, so he also sat down and cried with them. All day they sat weeping, 
watching Malty, expecting every moment to see him pass on. But he didn't. On the contrary, he had never felt so well in his life. Finally at sunset, Malty looked up and laughed. I'm not going to die, he said. I've never felt so well. You'd better stop crying. And I'm going to go out and get me some more of that giant's head. I'm hungry. Don't, don't, cried his father and mother. But he went, because he was a naughty boy who often ignored his parents. He came back with a whole giant's head in his arms. See here, father and mother, he cried. We'll all eat some of this. Not only is it not poison, but it tastes a lot better than potatoes. Patroclus and Daphne hesitated, but they were hungry. Since the crop of giant's heads had sprung up in their field instead of potatoes, they had been hungry most of the time. So they tasted it. Well, it is good, said Daphne. But I think it would be better cooked. So she put some in a kettle of water over the fire and let it boil a while. Then she dished it up, and they all ate it. Daphne was inventive, and something of a genius. And the next day, she concocted another dish out of the giant's heads. She boiled them, and sifted them, and mixed them with eggs, and sugar, and milk, and spice. Then she lined some plates with puff paste, filled them with the mixture, and set them in the oven to bake. The result was unparalleled. Nothing half so exquisite had ever been tasted. They gathered all the giant's heads and stored them in the cellar so Daphne could bake pies of them every day. One morning, the king had been out hunting and happened to ride by the cottage of Patroclus, followed by a train of his knights. Daphne was baking pies as usual, and the kitchen door and window were both open, for the room was so warm. So the delicious odor of the pies perfumed the whole air about the cottage. What is it? That smells so utterly lovely, exclaimed the king, sniffing in a rapture. He sent his page in to see. The housewife is baking giant's head pies, said the page returning. What? thundered the king. Bring one to me. So the page brought out a pie to him, and all of his knights tasted it be sure it wasn't poison. The king had watched them sharply for a few moments to be sure they were not killed. Then he tasted it too. 
any beams. It was a new sensation, and a new sensation is a great boon to a king. I never tasted anything so altogether superfine, so utterly magnificent in my life, cried the king. Stewed peacock's tongues from the Baltic are not to be compared with it. Call out whoever cooked this immediately. So Daphne came out trembling, and Patroclus, and Malty also. What a charming lad, exclaimed the king, as his glance fell upon Malty. Now tell me about these wonderful pies and I will reward you, as becomes a monarch. Then Patroclus fell on his knees, and related the whole history of the giant's head pies from the beginning. The king actually blushed, and I forgot to knight you, oh, noble and brave man, and to make a lady of your admirable wife. Then the king leaned gracefully down from his saddle and struck Patroclus with his jeweled sword and knighted him on the spot. The whole family then went on to live at the royal palace. The roses in the royal gardens were uprooted and giant's heads or bumpkins as they came to be called, were grown instead, and all the royal parks also were turned into pumpkin fields. Although it was Malty's naughty nature that resulted in the great discovery of delicious pumpkins, he did understand that it was time to change, and he started behaving more responsibly as he got older. And that is the story of a little naughty guy who gave the world the delightful pumpkin pie. This is the end of this story time episode. I hope you are deeply relaxed or even better, deeply asleep. Good night.